Well, do take uh, your Bible and that sheet, the space on the back if you want to be taking notes. And let's think a little bit further about Psalm 74. I did a few summers in America doing various camps. And for one week, I stayed with this guy called Pastor Dan. Pastor Dan was about six foot six, and he was old. I mean, he must have been at least very old. You know, he was, he was this old guy. And every morning I'd come down, and his wife would have set the table for breakfast, and we would sit there. And before we could eat, he would reach in the middle of the table and take this little box, and he'd take the lid off, and his kind of hand would tremble in, and he'd grasp a little scroll. And he'd unravel the scroll, and on it would be a promise from God's Word. It was a promise box. And he would read the promise. And then him and his wife would come up with a song, a hymn, that they would then sing together over the breakfast table. He would then lead us in prayer. And then we could tuck into the Weetabix and the toast and all that kind of thing. But this promise box was a great way to start the day. Finding strength in sorrows, or uh, light in darkness, or just a firm foundation for the unknowns of what lay ahead in that day. Now when it comes to the Psalms, sometimes we can use them as a little bit of a kind of pick-your-own-promise box. So we find a verse, you could take a verse in Psalm 74, like verse 12, but you, O God, are my king from of old, you bring salvation upon the earth. So that's nice. That would look good in the calendar. Stick it on the fridge. Maybe some pictures of swans and signets. Or maybe I'll send it to a mate as an accountability text. Or I'll memorize that. You know, it's nice. But actually, it may bear no relation to the original context of the psalm. It's just a kind of pick your own. And so what I want to do is we work through Psalm 74 is to model how we should rightly claim the promises of the Psalms of the Old Covenant, as Martin was speaking about. See, the songbook of the Psalms is originally a songbook for God's people, Israel. And so we've got to first understand the historical context. What what was going on? Why was the Psalm written? When was it sung? Secondly, we actually then need to consider this as a songbook of Jesus. He would have sung through the Psalms. I don't know if you've ever wondered, why are so many of the Psalms in the minor key? Why are so many of them full of sorrow? It's probably about 60-40 if you want a percentage, give or take. Well, it's probably biased that way because who is Jesus but the man of sorrows familiar with suffering? And so as we read this psalm, although we may not engage with you know, the original despair that the psalmist was feeling, it actually gives us a wonderful insight into the emotional life of our Lord Jesus. And it's only as we've done with historical context and in the Jesus context that we can come and use this as the songbook of the church today. So I want to model going through that tonight so that actually the rest of the psalms can be opened up and can be a foundation for your own prayers and your own emotions. I think it's fair that it's often when we're in pain and problem and persecution and poverty that actually we turn most intensely to prayer. 
But it's probably also true that when we're in pain and problems and persecution and poverty, that we don't know what to pray. And so I think Psalm 74 is going to help us greatly this evening. Uh, I've nicked, uh, it seems that the staff team are doing this a lot recently, we're nicking someone else's outline for a sermon. But actually Christopher Ash helps us greatly in this. He goes grieving, believing, pleading. So verses 1 to 11, grieving. The word on the lips of the psalmist is why. We see first that God's people are rejected. Now often again, we tend to read Psalms on their own, but actually I think Psalm 73 and Psalm 74 are like jigsaw pieces that fit together. Where did Psalm 73 leave us last week? It left us with the psalmist saying, it is good for me to be near God. Remember, it moved, if you like music and modulation, it moved from being probably off-key, everything was out of perspective, to him coming to the place of clarity that was near God in his temple, and that took him from off-key to being in the major key. He suddenly found reason for praise. And so he ends the psalm by saying, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. It is good for me to be near God. The nearness of God. Psalm 74, though, finds God's people not near, but far off. Why have you rejected us forever, O God? The complicating factor in Psalm 73 was the evil of other people. The complicating factor in Psalm 74 is the evil of God's people themselves. They were unfaithful to God and so justly were sent far to Babylon where they would be in exile. Exile is kind of the naughty step of the Old Testament when God's people justly get a punishment where they are removed from being close to who he is. You can read of that story in the latter half of Second Kings. And so do you receive their question? Why? Verse 1. Again, verse 1. Why? They come back and say that again in verse 11. Why? They're in agony. They're grieving. Why, God? And the why is not so much the punishment itself. They knew that that was just. But it is the apparent finality of the punishments. The real grief is found in verse 1. Is this forever? Verse 9, how long? Verse 10, how long? Verse 11, is this forever? And so the agony that they feel in exile is because of the closeness they had felt a la Psalm 73. Verse 1, they were like sheep to a shepherd. Real intimacy. Verse 2, they were a people to the purchaser. Verse 2 again, they were an inheritance to the heir. The agony of God's absence flows from the previous proximity to his people. You must have known that. You know when you've, maybe you've had a friend to stay and you've had an intense just week long with them. And before you hooked up with them, you didn't realize how much you missed them. But that short intimacy intensifies the agony when you depart. They've been so close to God and now they are so far off and God seems so distant. God's people rejected, but also God's place ruined from verse 2 to 8. God's closeness with his people had been realized in 
the temple. The temple was God's pledge of nearness, his promise of access. It was a constant reminder in the midst of the city, God's near, he's close. And the architecture of the temple itself spoke of his holiness. The splendor of the temple spoke of his majesty. But the whole system of the temple spoke of his mercy. Even though I'm holy and majestic, you can come close through the means that I'll provide. It was his promised presence. But what has happened now? Well, verse 5, people have gone mental with axes. And all the beautiful carved paneling has been totally destroyed. And then like pyromaniacs, they get busy with fire. And so this is the ultimate smash and burn. Not only are we distant from God, but the place where we previously knew closeness has been raised to the ground. Why? He cries. He's grieving. It gets worse. God's enemies are strident. That is, verse 4, they roar like a lion. Verse 8, they mock. Verse 10, they mock again. And verse 10, they revile. The temple would have been the place where they had heard God's word proclaimed. His law read. And yet now all they hear is the roar of their enemies. This temple would have been the place where they heard the beautiful singing of Asaph and his descendants reverberating off the walls. And now all they hear is God's name mocked and reviled. Why? And to make matters worse, we come to the valley of the Sam. Not only are his enemies strident, but God himself is silent. Verse 9, there is no, uh, no signs and there is no prophet. That is, no one to guide them in the exile, no one to commentate on what, go- what is going on, and no one to console them. Uh, we've had horrendous pictures in the newspapers this week. I read the Herald today, a picture of a body bag with a rose on top from this airline. I listened to the radio this morning and there was some controversy over what, what is it right to show pictures of in our newspapers? You know, what's too much? But when the psalmist comes to God grieving, he takes God by the hand and he spares no image. He says, come and see the tears on your people's face. Come and see the destruction your enemies have caused in the temple. Let me show you. You see? In fact, do you hear? Mocking and reviling your name. God, why? There is a godliness in their grief. I don't know if you noticed that. What is their concern? It is not self-centered. It is not self-consumed. Verse 3, their concern is for the worship of God. Verse 7, their pursuit is the name of God. And verse 9, their hunger is for the word of God. There is godly grief and there is ungodly grief. Here is God's people grieving at God's name, God's glory, and God's word. When they are lost, when they are defiled, when they are destroyed, God's people grieve. But in his grieving, he somehow summons up 
the ability to remind himself of who God is. Do you see in verse 12, we get what is often a wonderful word in the Bible, but as he moves from grieving to believing, three times in verses 1 to 11, he has said, why, why, why? There is so much he doesn't know. And yet in verse 12, somehow he manages to remind himself of what he does know. In the first half of the psalm, he said, God, remember. Now he says to himself, remember God. The repeated phrase, it was you. It was you. The ESV actually helps us out here. The ESV in verse 4 says, Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. And then verse 12 says, God works salvation in the midst of the earth. So he's very deliberately saying, Okay, having seen and been consumed with everything that the enemies have done in the midst of the temple, I want to step back and see actually what has God done in the midst of all the earth. My perspective was so narrow and negative. It was only on what God's enemies had done right this moment and only on the temple. Actually, I need to take a step back and see what God is doing in history and everywhere in the midst of his entire creation. And so he looks and he says, okay, it was you. What? The God's people saved We picked up some of the language earlier. He is a powerful king who has saved us in the past. He very deliberately uses words that recall the Exodus. The greatest moment of salvation in the Old Testament. God's people oppressed by Egypt. And yet through a series of miraculous signs, God leads his people through the Red Sea to safety where they would worship God. And so the psalmist picks up this language. The sea was split open. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. I think that's an image for Egypt. I think he's also picturing some of the the kind of myths of Egypt's gods. See, what, what their gods claim to do in mythology, God has actually done in reality. Okay, it was you who saved us in the past. God's people saved. But again, he takes a further step back and says, okay, not only God's people saved, but God's place created. Not just a temple, but the entire creation. If you know your Bibles, when you read the account of Genesis 1 and 2, there is a lot of temple imagery in the Garden of Eden. God is not just present in the temple he cannot be contained in temples made by human hands and so the psalmist or Asaph is told listen they might decreate by destruction but God creates from nothing he reminds himself God is not confined to the temple and he is not absent in Babylon but in fact he is Sustaining all things, day and night, summer and winter. Now, why does he do this? 
How does this help him move from minor key to major key? Well, he says, when I don't see why now, I must look and see God's acts of salvation in the past and his sovereignty over creation in the present. That is what moves from minor to major. I don't get why, but I do know that you are the God of salvation and sovereign over creation. He is powerful and he is present. And therefore, thirdly, he moves from grieving and believing to pleading. Having summoned a reminder to his whole being of who God is, who his king is, that summons within him the courage to plead. Verses 18 to 23. And so we get these three pleads. Remember, regard, and rise up. Remember, verse 18. He appeals to God's concern for his own name. Verse 18, God, your name is being mocked. Your name is being reviled. Remember. Now, does that mean that God forgets? No, he doesn't forget. It is just using a human analogy to try and understand a delayed fulfillment from God. He's using a human analogy to interpret from a human point of view what God is doing. Remember, act. And on what basis? God's concern for his own name. Not only remember, but God regard, verses 19 to 21. Have regard for your covenant. What does he appeal to? The fact that God never fails to keep his promise. He's on audacious ground. He's confident here. Okay, God, we were meant to be the sheep of your pasture. But right now we're like a dove in the the grip of a beast. God, we were meant to be a light to the nations. But right now we're in darkness, oppressed by violence. But your covenant has promised us Therefore, have regard for your covenants. You are always faithful. Therefore, be faithful to us. This is the key to his plea. Notice what he doesn't make his appeal on. His own faithfulness. God, remember, I have been faithful to you. No, he's not. Why is he in exile? Because of his unfaithfulness to God. But what do you appeal to? when you cannot appeal to your own faithfulness. You appeal to the faithfulness of God. God, your covenant is a covenant of grace. I wasn't much when you entered into covenant with me. In fact, I was no better than I am now in exile. And so because your covenant is a covenant of grace, be faithful to me once more. It's almost an appeal to God's unconditional election for the sake of his ongoing faithfulness. God, have regard for your covenant. And then finally he prays, remember, regard, rise up. He says, God, I appeal to you on the basis that you have your own cause in this creation that no one can thwart. And it's quite interesting the language he uses. He says, God, 
if you don't hear our feeble prayers, then at least hear this endless clamoring of your enemies. How all day long they are mocking and reviling your name. Remember, regard, rise up. He doesn't appeal on their name, their faithfulness, or their cause. But on the basis of it was you, your salvation, your covenant, your cause. Therefore, be faithful. Remember. Now, did God? Did he remember? Did he regard his covenant? History says yes. History tells us that although they stayed in Babylon for a while, he did rise up. And he brought them all the way home. And he actually restored and rebuilt the very temple that had been destroyed. You can read of it in the book of Ezra. As the people come home and they start the rebuilding project. But you know, although that brought great joy, because God's nearness had been restored, some of the old boys remembered the old temple. And so in the midst of rejoicing, there was weeping. Yes, God had fulfilled his promise, but it wasn't the old temple. And so even as the years roll on, they're waiting for a better fulfillment. And so my guess is even once they'd returned to Jerusalem, even as they were worshipping in the rebuilt temple, do you know, I reckon they still sang Psalm 74. Remember. Regard. Rise up. I guess, I guess that when we meet Simeon in Luke chapter 2, Simeon may have been singing Psalm 74. In Luke 2, Simeon is seen and we're told he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is, he's waiting for God's kingdom to be restored. He's waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. My guess is he was probably singing Psalm 74. When in walks this young couple... And they bring with him a baby. And as Simeon sees the baby Jesus, he says, My eyes have seen the salvation of God. Where is Psalm 74 fulfilled? It is fulfilled in Jesus, the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen. My guess too is that when Jesus, that little baby, grew up and eventually he found himself sitting on a mountainside facing the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, my guess is he sang Psalm 74 or it at least came to mind. Do you remember his reaction when he looked across Jerusalem to the temple? We're told that he wept. He grieves. Not because the temple had been ravaged by axe and by sword, but because the temple had been ravaged by tradition and exploitation. He grieves. My guess is he prays, Lord, have regard for your covenant. Remember, rise up. This Jesus in John's gospel would speak of himself as the temple. 
He refers to his own body as the temple of God. John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled amongst us. He is the new temple, the true temple. And when he spoke, he said, I will destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and raise it up again in three days. And you know, when Jesus went to the cross and his body is ravaged and his body is ruined and his body is destroyed, my guess is that his disciples on the Saturday, when his body lay broken in a tomb, sang Psalm 74. God, why? The very one that seemed to be fulfilling your promises has been destroyed. God, remember. God, regard. God, rise up. And so three days later, Jesus, having been exiled on the cross for the sins of his people, rises and leads a new exodus. Not through the waters of the Red Sea, but through the valley of the shadow of death. So this psalm finds its fulfillment where? God fulfilling his promise as the temple of Jesus, the dwelling place of God with men, is first destroyed, but then raised. God is faithful to his promise. Now how does this psalm apply to us? I think firstly it only applies through Christ. That we can sing the psalm and we can think and meditate on the body of Christ destroyed but then raised for our salvation. We can think of that new exodus. We can think in the language of the psalm of Jesus crushing the heads of the evil one. And you know as we see that through Christ I think we can sing the psalm in lots of different contexts. Do you know, I think we can sing this psalm for our persecuted family across the world. I don't know if you've heard this week of our Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq fleeing the Sunni Muslims. I think we can pray this psalm for our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, why? We can pray verse you know, 18. 19, you've handed over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Don't forget the lives of your afflicted people. Don't let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. But may the poor and needy praise your name. I think we can pray this psalm for our nation's church. The real tragedy of our time is that we don't have a famine of God's words, and yet we still reject it. It's not like the exile, where it seemed that God is silent, but we have the Bible in multiple translations, easy access, and yet even churches are sticking their fingers in their ears and refusing to hear God's word. I think we can pray this psalm and say, God, how long will people mock you? Remember. I think we can pray this psalm in the context of our secular society. I think that language of taking down everything in the temple and setting up their own signs, 
resonates in our culture? Isn't it true that every vestige of Christianity is being torn down? Everything is an offense, and in its place, the signs of our secular world, the idols of our world, are being put in their place. I think we can pray this psalm. Lord, how long will the enemy mock you? How long will the foe revile your name forever? I wonder how much we are still concerned for the use of God's name. Does it bite at us? Does it make us grave when we hear it used? In vain. I think the psalm helps us to grieve rightly. But it's also a prayer that's a model for us when we feel rejection and ruin and the enemy roaring. I think that resonates with many of us. In Christ, we will never be truly rejected by God, but it may be that our unfaithfulness brings a sense of distance, maybe even the reality of a disciplined, a disciplining distance where God for a time withdraws. And so we can pray this psalm. I think when our sin would rob us of our peace, when our enemy would roar around us, when our world would revile and mock, we should grieve with Psalm 74. But then come to and say, but it is you. We need to do that move from minor to major key. Scottish people love to sing in the minor key. We love a reason to just say, this is rubbish. Woe is us. Everything's half empty. The world's against us. Actually, we need to make this transition from minor to major key by saying, okay, God, you are the God of creation. And although I may not know all the whys of today, I do know that in the past you have been the God who has saved me in the cross of Christ. And you are the God who is sovereign over the days and the seasons that I experience. And that gives me a confidence to plate. And how do we do so? Well, on the basis of God's name, we pray in Jesus' name. We pray, Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray on the basis of God's covenant. It's not my faithfulness, but it's your faithfulness that you have pledged to me by your grace. And it's for the sake of God's cause, what he is doing in the world. Do you know, I think there is a, there is a time where we need to grieve rightly where our affections need to be the affections of Christ, the, the emotions of God himself. We would grieve over what grieves him. But actually we then too need to remember how good he has been to us and how close he is with us. And even in our grieving, not to grieve without hope, but to find rejoicing even in the midst of sorrow. Let's pray.